How many of you have ever been driving somewhere and it feels like you just can't get forward? You can't get moving. A couple years ago, I went on a vacation with my parents. We were going to Tennessee. And usually how the driving for vacations work is my dad and my grandpa would drive in one car and my mom and my grandma would drive in another. But when I got old enough, I would kind of alternate and give either my mom or my dad a break from the driving. So I think I had been driving my mom and grandma. I went over and gave my dad a break from driving. We just got done at a gas station. We pull onto an interstate right by Knoxville and it is bumper to bumper traffic all the way down the interstate. And we are going I think two miles per hour if we're lucky. Otherwise, we're just stopped. And we are just waiting there. And of course, I'm with my dad and grandpa. My dad decided that he was going to take a nap because he'd been driving all day. My grandpa didn't say he was going to take a nap, but I just always knew that's what was going to happen if he was in the passenger seat. So I'm kind of just there by myself. And all of a sudden, I see people kind of just walking forward. They're trying to see what's going on with the cars in front of them. And we found out eventually after about two hours of being just in bumper to bumper traffic and we maybe got 13, 14 miles, you know, found out a semi had wrecked, caught fire. And so they not only had to get the tow truck and things like that, they had to get um, a water truck and everything else and fire trucks to put out the fire. And so we finally got back onto the road and I've never been so happy to just get to a gas station. And I said, all right, I've done my time. You know, somebody else can, yeah, somebody else can drive, you know, and I realized we didn't make it that far. But it can be so hard when you're trying to move forward and you're trying to advance. And really what we see in Acts 13 is we see the gospel moving forward. We see the gospel advancing. Now, there's a lot of things that are different about the early church and how the gospel went out than they are today. For example, if you want to go share the gospel with someone, you don't probably don't have to walk 14, 15, 16 miles to their town to go tell them about it. You can just hop in your car and drive over there, right? Or you can send them a text or you can FaceTime them or send them an email, you know. Um, but in those days, they would have to walk, they'd have to journey from town to town to share the gospel. And really what we've seen in the book of Acts is the gospel go to the Jerusalem church, the Jews, We've seen it go to the Samaritans in Judea and Samaria and Judea. And then we see the gospel going to the end of the world, to the Gentiles. And really in the last couple chapters, that's what we have seen. The gospel goes out to others. And we're all thankful that the gospel goes to the Gentiles, right? Because I don't think any of us in the room are Jewish. So if it wasn't for the gospel going to the Gentiles, none of us would be saved. And so we see the gospel advancing. It's going outward. It's being shared with others. And we see here in Acts 13, God start to appoint men and some women to specific responsibilities and works of getting the gospel out to the Gentiles. That's what we're going to see with Paul and Barnabas. We're going to see them as they start their first missionary journey. In these final 16 chapters of Acts, we see Paul take a couple different missions trips and he shares the gospel with many different people in Gentile towns. And so later on in the sermon, I'll put up some maps and things like that to help us. If you want to, there are some printed maps out there on the table. You can pick one up sometime during the sermon or even after just for reference. You can see where Paul went on his journey. And as we see Paul going and being led by the Spirit, sometimes we can so get so caught up in, okay, where did he go? What did he do? That we can miss the idea of what does God have for us in this passage? And so really what I want us to consider this morning as we see the gospel advancing 
Because we want to ask this question, how can God use me to advance the gospel? Not how can God use just our church, even though that's a good question to ask. Not how can God use Pastor Lance. How can God use me to advance the gospel to others? Because I think the truth is this. Sometimes we can make the mistake of reading Acts 13 or any of the other next 16 chapters of Acts. And we see Paul and he's so courageous and he's so intense and he's so good at sharing the gospel And he had such faith that we think, okay, God used Paul in that way, but God can't use me. And the truth is this, is that Paul was a murderer. Paul had killed Christians. Paul was opposed to Christianity. And so Paul would be the first one to tell you if he was alive today, if God can use Paul, God can use any of us. Maybe not by going on foot to different towns to share the gospel, but God can use us to share his gospel. And so as we look at this text this morning, I want to look at three different ways that God equips us to go advance the gospel. And the first one is this. He calls us to serve. He calls us to serve. And I'm not just talking about serving as a pastor, serving as a missionary, but God calls each and every one of us to serve him both in his church and in sharing the gospel with other people. I think if you're a Christian this morning, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you know what he's done for you on the cross. You've trusted in him. God has called you to ministry, not as a full-time job maybe, but in whatever context of life he has you to serve his church and to share the gospel with others. So he first calls us to serve. Look at verse 1. Now there were in the church in Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who is called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. So we've talked about this church in Antioch in Acts 11. It was uh, about 100 miles from Jerusalem. It was a large Gentile city. It had some Jewish presence there too. Yes, a lot of Gentiles and a lot of Gentiles who were saved. It was growing Rapidly, In fact, it's growing so much that in Acts 11, Barnabas is sent to the city to go see how they're doing, to check in on them, to understand what's going on there. And when Barnabas is there, he is amazed. He's impressed. Why? Because the grace of God is going out. People are being saved. He's very excited to see what is going on in that church. And so he says, hey, I can't just lead this church on my own. I need someone else to come. And so he walks over to Tarsus and he finds Saul, who we left off in Acts 9. And he brings Saul with him to help in that work. So in the church in Antioch, we see that there wasn't just Paul or Saul. He's going to be called Paul later, so I'm probably going to go back and forth. We see that there wasn't just Saul and Barnabas, but there's also these other three men listed as well. And I want to talk a little bit about who they were says they were prophets and teachers. So remember, they had the gift at this point of prophecy. We see this at the end of Acts 11. Agabus said that there was going to be a famine in the land, and there was. So some of these men, I think, had this specific gift. But all of them, I think, were teachers in some way. And this is a little bit different than what we've seen in the book of Acts. In Acts, we have seen preaching and teaching, but it's mainly been in just kind of spontaneous explanations of the gospel in different places. But what we see these five men doing is they, are, I think, are regularly teaching God's word to people. And notice it wasn't just Paul, it wasn't just Barnabas, but it was these three other men as well who got involved in the ministry. The church in Antioch was big, and Paul and Barnabas were great teachers of God's word, I'm sure, and encouragers. But the ministry was not only about them. 
but there were others as well who served and got involved. And I think that's really cool to see. So who were these men? First of all, it talks about Barnabas. We know he's called the son of encouragement. How would you like that to be your name? The son of encouragement or Barnabas. He, we've talked a lot about in Acts. We're going to see him even in the next couple chapters become pretty important to the story of Acts. Second is a man named Simon who is called Niger. He was from North Africa. He was saved as a Gentile, I believe, and then gets involved in this church. We don't know too much about him besides the fact of where he's from. We see this third man called Menaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch. There's a couple different ways you can translate that. You could say a childhood friend, but we get the impression, at least from this verse, that this guy grew up with Herod the Tetrarch. He's the one that tried Jesus before he was put to death. Now, we mentioned Herod, a different Herod, last week because he's the one that puts Peter in prison. There's a lot of guys named Herod, and I mentioned this last week. They all are kind of weird. They all have some different things going on in their lives. And you wonder, from just reading this verse, it makes me wonder, Luke, especially, seems to talk a lot about the Herod family. Herod the Great in Luke 2, Herod the Tetrarch, Herod Antipas, or Herod Agrippa. You wonder, how did Luke know all of this information? And I think it was because he knew this Menaean, who was a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and he had a connection to the Herod family. I'm not saying that's scripture. I'm just saying that's my guess, is that he had a pretty good connection through this man. Remember, God inspired Luke to write the gospel and Acts, but Luke also did his own research and study and interviewing different people as he was writing the gospel. So again, just my guess, but Luke does seem to know a lot about the Herod family. And it's interesting that this man becomes a teacher in the church. It'd almost be like if somebody in our church had a connection to like the royal family or something, and they kind of knew the inside information. I don't think anybody does, but if you do, talk to me after the service, okay? Number four, we see that there was, uh, well, I skipped one actually, Lucius of Cyrene. Now, some people think this is Luke himself, who's the writer. I actually just think it was a different person. And then finally, there's Saul, who we're going to see later is called Paul. So all of these men are serving in this ministry together, and we see something happen in verse 2. Look at it with me. It says, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So this happens during a normal worship service. And oftentimes in Acts, we see God work through when people are praying, when people are worshiping. I don't know how the Holy Spirit spoke to them. I don't know if they just all knew. I don't know if it was some kind of voice that came over the congregation. I have no idea. But the Holy Spirit said to them in some way during this worship service to set apart Barnabas and Saul. And it was when they were fasting and praying. And they seemed to understand that this is part of the will of God. Now, can you imagine if we were having some kind of prayer service or something here, you know, if God spoke to us and said, you know, Pastor Lance is going to go on a missions journey. You guys are going to set him apart to go preach somewhere else. You know, that might be a little bit rattling. Think about this. Paul and Barnabas were really some of the central figures in this church. They'd been brought there to teach everyone else. But I think this tells us something about the church in Antioch. They did not just stay in one spot spiritually, but people are growing. Other people are getting involved teaching God's word. So that when Paul and Barnabas are called to go somewhere else, the church in Antioch is healthy enough that they are fine. They have people who can teach them God's word, and they are able to send them out. 
This church, I don't think, was very old even when this happened. They'd maybe been there for a year. So again, we see how God is working in Paul and Barnabas' life and in the church's life. I want to mention something else. I don't think this is when Saul and Barnabas were called to ministry. Some people say, oh, this is how God calls people to ministry. He has some kind of still small voice come over them, and they say, you know, Lance is supposed to go to Sycamore Bible Church in Trafalgar. That didn't ever happen to me, you know. Maybe it will one day. I'm not trying to say it never will, but it hasn't yet. I think they were already called to ministry. Why do I know that? Because they're already doing ministry. Can you imagine for a second if all of a sudden I came to you one day and I said, hey, guys, God has called me to go be a pastor. So I'm going to leave. I'm going to go be a pastor. All of you would say, well, what have you been doing for the last year? You know, well, I don't, wasn't really called to be a pastor then. I've just been kind of faking it, you know, but now I know I'm really called to be a pastor. Well, you all would look at me like I'm crazy, right? And probably be happy I was leaving. So uh, Paul and Barnabas were already preaching, already ministering God's word. And they were called then to a different specific work that God had for them. So they were already called to ministry, yes. They were called to a different specific work that God had for them, and it involved going and sharing the gospel with others. Look at verse 3. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So this church becomes like a church that commissions them to go share the gospel. They lay hands on them. They pray over them. And again, I don't think this is some type of ordination like we think of today, but if you were to send someone else out to a different church, you would probably pray over them. If we were to ever send a missionary out from our church, we'd pray over them. We would send them out with God's grace. And so we see God calling Paul and calling Barnabas to a different work. And we can, like I said earlier, we can be tempted sometimes to have some misconceptions about how God calls people to different ministry. I'll just be honest, when I was growing up, I never had God in a camp or somewhere tell me, hey, you're called to ministry through like some kind of audible voice. Okay, I never heard God whisper in my ear and say that. How did I think or know that I was supposed to preach and be in ministry? Well, my pastor got me involved in preaching from when I was a young age. I thought I met the qualifications in scripture. And then over time, people continued to affirm that I should be a pastor. I also had the desire to do it. I don't think anybody is called into ministry that doesn't have the desire to be in ministry. How, how would you guys like it if, you know, I was a pastor here, but I said I didn't really want to do it. Trust me, I want to be the pastor here. You know, if I didn't, I wouldn't be here. I think God calls different men into full-time ministry, but don't miss this. I think all of us are called to some kind of ministry. And maybe that just involves you and your full-time job. Maybe it's you sharing the gospel with people at work. Maybe it's you, you being used by God in your church. The ministry of the church, of Sycamore Bible Church, is not just based on one person. If it was left up for me to do everything, prepare communion, bake for the potlucks and things like that, or decorate for Valentine's Day banquet, it would be a very, very scary situation, right? We're thankful we have other people who can do ministry. God calls all of us to serve him in some specific way. And I don't think it's necessarily by him audibly speaking to us. So how does God call us to ministry? How do we know what we're supposed to do? And maybe you've thought about this. You've thought about getting involved, but you're thinking, I don't really know what my gifts are. 
Some people say you should do this kind of spiritual gift survey. You should take a test or something like that. I think the best way to know your spiritual gift, how God has equipped you to serve the church, is by serving in many different areas in the church, by helping out in different ways and seeing how God has equipped and used you. Maybe it's by teaching his word. Maybe it's not. Maybe it's by cooking. Some of you have eaten my cooking. You've said, hey, God's not called you to do that, okay? You can keep preaching, all right? How has God equipped you to serve his church? And sometimes it is by trying out many different things. I'd love for people, other people to try out singing and things like that, you know, but most of you are shaking your head saying, no, that's not how God's called me to serve, right? God has a place for all of us, a way that we can be used both to serve his church and don't miss the second part, but also to share the gospel with others. God puts people in our lives that we can meet to share the gospel with. You are the best person to share your gospel with your family, with your coworkers, with your friends. It's not my family. I could share the gospel with them, yes, but they're not my family. God's put you there to do that. So God's called you to serve. He's called you to share the gospel with others. And we see this with Paul and Barnabas, that they're especially chosen by God. As we move on to verses four through seven, we see that God has not only called us to serve, to serve in his church, and we'll talk more about that at the end of the sermon, but he also, number two, sends us to lost people. God sends us to lost people, and we see this in verses 4 through verse 7. Look at verse 4. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there sailed to Cyprus. All right, so this is the point where if you have a map or you can look, I think Schaefer is able to put the map on the screen, you can start looking at how this missionary journey takes off. So over on the right-hand side of the map, we see Antioch. Antioch was north of Jerusalem. It might be hard to see on the screen. I don't know. Um, Antioch was north of Jerusalem. They set sail to the island that's under Cilicia called Cyprus. So actually, to get from Antioch to Cyprus, they had to walk to Seleucia, which was which was about 16 miles or so away. And remember, they had to walk over there. And then they set sail from there to Cyprus. Now, they did missions in the New Testament different than we do missions today. Sometimes I think it's better, but a lot of things would be harder back then than they were today. For example, they had to walk where they were going, right? And also, they didn't necessarily know all the different places they were going to go. They probably had a map, and they probably said, hey, we'd like to go to this city or this city. But what Paul and Barnabas really did was when they got to Cyprus, they started preaching in this town called Salamis. It was the capital, or it used to be actually, the capital of Cyprus, and they just went from town to town preaching the gospel. How would you like it if, you know, I came to you as a missionary and I said, hey, I'm going to go share the gospel with these people, but you asked me what my plan was, and I said, I'm just going to walk around and start preaching from town to town, you know, but I didn't really have a plan for where I was going to stay, what I was going to eat, things like that. You'd probably tell me to go back to the drawing board and come up with a few more things. But really, Paul and Barnabas just went from town to town preaching the gospel. Now, it's a little bit easier because there were actually already Christians there. We've already seen Christians come to Cyprus in Acts 11. We don't know how much they worked with the churches there or anything. We just see that they've been preaching the gospel. And they first come to this town called Salamis. Like I said earlier, it used to be 
the capital of Cyprus, but there's a big earthquake that tore down a lot of the buildings, and so they moved the capital later. It was actually a very diverse population. It had Egyptians, Phoenicians, Greeks, Assyrians, Persians, and so many other different groups of people that lived there. When Paul and Barnabas get there, we see in verse 4, or in verse 5, when they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues to the Jews. Now, this is important for us to understand. They go and they start preaching in the synagogue. What were the synagogues? It was the Jewish gatherings of church. Synagogue means to gather. So it's the Jewish gatherings, but these weren't Christians yet. So they're actually preaching to Jewish people. Now, you might stop for a second and say, I thought Paul was called to go to the Gentiles. And he was. And I think even in this moment, Paul knew this. So you might ask, why did he start by preaching to the Jews? There's a couple reasons. Number one, I think simply because it would have made the most logistical sense. Okay, the Jews already know about the Bible, about the God, you know, about a Christ who is going to be coming. They didn't think he'd come yet. And so they already had that starting point. And so all we need to show them is that Christ has come. He's died for your sins and present the gospel to them. So it'd be a much easier segue to preach the gospel to Jewish people. Whereas Gentiles, for some of them, you might have to start from ground zero. They might not know anything about God. Remember when Paul is in Athens later in Acts, he has to first tell them that, you know, there's not just many gods, but there is one God, right? And so I think he started by preaching to the Jews in the synagogues because they already had an understanding of who God was, what the Bible was, and it was easier that way. We also see in Romans, Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of God to the Jew first and then the Gentile. Does that mean that Jews are better than Gentiles? No, but that is the order of how the gospel went out. It went to the Jews, it went to the Samaritans, and then it went to the ends of the earth with the Gentiles. That's my explanation, at least my explanation for why Paul started in the synagogues preaching. So they're proclaiming the word of God in the synagogues to the Jews. We assume they had success, but they don't actually tell us. And then we see that John was there to assist them. Now, this wasn't the apostle John. This was John Mark. And we actually saw him in Acts 12. His mother was Mary. He's actually the person who wrote the gospel of Mark. And he follows Paul and Barnabas around and it says, and assists them. Some of your translations might add a little more to this. The word actually means to see to one's physical needs, making sure they had a place to stay, making sure they had food and things like that. He was probably able to do this because he came from some wealth. But I also think he assisted them in sharing the gospel. And he was kind of like their assistant in some way. And John Mark, as I've mentioned before, is going to be a big character in the rest of Acts. But we see him here as well. So it says in verse 6, when they'd gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, which if you see, Paphos is on the other side of the island. And I think they went through all the cities that they could and preached the gospel in each one of them. So if you imagine, this took a while to get through the island, preaching from city to city to get to Paphos. This is where we see a place where Luke starts to emphasize. Now, Paphos was actually named the capital of the city after Seleucia had this big earthquake. There's a big population center there as well. And so we see them go to this place called Paphos. It was an extensive journey. And when they get there, look at verse, the end of verse 6. It says, They came upon a certain magician, 
a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. Now, we've already seen a magician. In fact, you're thinking, haven't we talked about this before? We've already seen a magician in Acts. That was all the way back in Acts 8 with the other magician, Simon the Magician. And Peter ends up rebuking him because he's trying to buy the power of the Holy Spirit. This is another magician or someone who dabbled in magic, but he at least seems to be a little bit more sinister. He's called a false prophet by Luke. He probably dabbled in astrology and dark magic, things like that, maybe even some witchcraft. And his name is Bar-Jesus, which just means the son of Jesus. We also see that he has another name later. Notice that he was also Jewish. Now, the Jews were not supposed to participate in this dark magic, but he at least had some kind of Jewish heritage. And so he is there. They come upon this guy, and he's with another man. It says a proconsul, who's like a governor. He was in charge of like the province there. He was the head of the government. So he's a pretty important figure, and his name is Sergius Paulus. And it says he's a man of intelligence. Now imagine if you met somebody and they said, my name is you know, Lance Lewis, I'm a man of intelligence, or something like that. You know? Why were they called a man of intelligence? Well, I think he was probably pretty smart, but I think Luke tells us this because he wanted to meet Saul and Barnabas. That's what he says next. He says he was a man of intelligence who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. He knew there was something about them, and he wanted to be near them. He wanted to be close to them. And so he seeks them out, and I think Luke is commending him for that. So we see they come to this island, and they start meeting different people. Now we're going to see what happens with the rest of what happens with Bar-Jesus and this pro-council in a little bit. But this is how God is moving Paul and moving Barnabas to a different areas to share the gospel. And you can think, you know, the text almost makes it sound like they just came across this town. They didn't know they were going to meet these people at that place. And so it's important for us to remember that while, yes, Paul and Barnabas are making these decisions, going from town to town, this is all part of the plan of God, how God works through his servants to share the gospel with others. It's interesting how God brings certain people to different places. I remember my dad telling me his testimony. My dad was in the military. He signed up for the reserves unit when he was young because he thought he could get free college from it. And it seemed like a good idea because the United States had not been to war for years. But like right when he signed up, desert storm happened. And so the next thing you know, he was sent over to Saudi Arabia. He was over there for several months until a a missile blew up the base they were in. And dad actually got to come home on a purple heart. He talks about that experience and how it was traumatizing and how he was really at a lower point in his life when that happened. When suddenly he remembered the gospel. His mom had been pretty faithful to take him to church when he was young. They'd gone to a different church over near the Danville area. But my dad had gotten away from the faith. And so my dad, I think in that moment, believes he accepted the gospel. And I think that's when he did. He actually didn't have anybody share the gospel with him. But he was looking for a good church to go to when one day he stumbles across a little church in Ridge Farm, Illinois. And he sees a girl singing in the choir. That was my mom. And he just randomly found this church out of the middle of nowhere. 
And within a year, they're married. And not only did he meet my mom there, but the pastor there who married them actually did a lot to help my dad work through his own salvation and then different things in his life. But my dad always talks about how in his mind it was so random that he was able to find this church that was just in the middle of nowhere. He didn't know anybody there. And that's just like my dad, too, to go somewhere just kind of out of the blue. And yet that's where he met my mom. That's where he became discipled. That's where he really started to grow in Christ. It's important for us to remember, sometimes we can become afraid to share the gospel. We can wonder, am I making the right decision? Am I saying the right things? Am I going to the right people? You and I are only working within the sovereign plan of God. God knows the people we're going to meet. He knows who we're going to talk to. And anything you and I say to anyone else that has any value doesn't come from us. It comes from God. Anything I say during this sermon is only true, is only good if it comes from God's word. Paul and Barnabas are traveling around with, and they're preaching the gospel to others. But they're doing this because it's part of God's plan. It's part of what God has called them to do. God calls us to go to others who are lost. He calls us to share the gospel with people who are in our lives. Think about who's in your life that you can share the gospel with. Some of you may not need to go to another town, to another another city. There's someone you know today you can share God's word with. Finally, look with me lastly at verses 8 through 12. We see that God not only calls us to serve, he not only sends us to lost people, but he enables us to defend truth. He enables us to defend truth. Look at verse 8. But Elemas, the magician, so this is Bar-Jesus, it's his other name. Elemas means wise. Elemas opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. This magician was probably like a personal consultant for the proconsul. This was pretty common in the Roman world to consult people who did dark magic and who are magicians. In fact, we see this with Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian king, who when he had all those dreams in Daniel, he goes and he seeks all the magicians out for their advice. This was probably someone who advised this proconsul, and he starts opposing Barnabas and Saul. Now, why does he do this? Well, he's probably afraid that if this guy gets saved, then he's going to lose his job. He's not going to have a hold on this guy. So he starts opposing them. Now, we don't actually see what he did to oppose them, but apparently it was pretty significant. He was trying to turn the proconsul away from the faith. He's trying to stop him from hearing the gospel. And there's a pretty intense response from Saul. Notice verse 9. This is where we finally get the name change of Saul to Paul. It says, But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him. Now, after this verse, he's called Paul for most of the rest of the book of Acts. You might ask, why did Luke pick now to start calling him Paul? Well, Saul was his Jewish name. So Saul of Tarsus was his Jewish name. Paul was his Roman name. And so he goes by Paul, I believe, because he's starting to talk to the Gentiles. He's starting to share the gospel with the Gentile people. And so that is the name he would go by. Some people make a big deal about God changing his name from Saul to Paul, just like he did with other people. I actually just think he wanted to go by Paul because it was his Gentile name. Nevertheless, this is what we see him called as for the rest of Acts, pretty much. Notice what he says. (coughs) He says, you son of the devil. This is actually kind of a play on words. 
Bar-Jesus means son of Jesus. He's saying, actually, you're not a son of Jesus. You are a son of the devil. You are doing the will of Satan. You're an enemy of all righteousness. He's opposed to what is good, what is just, what is right. It says full of deceit and villainy. You know what deceit is? It's trying to confuse someone to make them believe something that is false. Villainy is trying to oppose what is good, trying to get something for your own greed, really. Trying to make something happen for yourself. Uh, Bar Jesus, this magician, didn't think what he was doing was good, but he knew it would be good for himself because he did not want this proconsul being saved and for himself to be out of a job. So when he opposes them, Paul starts just blasting him with all of these different things, showing him how he is opposing the plan of God. Let me just pause here for a moment to say this. You might worry when you're sharing the gospel with others about what if they reject what I have to say? What if I'm mocked? What if I'm made fun of? What if this happens? Here we see right here what happens when someone who is clearly evil opposes the plan of God. And what Paul shows us is that God protects him and enables him to share the gospel. So he continues to just blast this guy for being an enemy. He says, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? So God has a way that's straight, that is narrow, that is for the believer. And this guy is perverting that, is making it crooked. Look at verse 11. And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. So Paul strikes him with blindness. And it's kind of interesting what happened to Paul when he was saved. When Jesus appears to him on the road of Damascus, he's blinded. And so it's just, you know, kind of a coincidence. It's maybe some parallelism to his own salvation experience that he causes this guy to go blind. It says for a time. I have no idea how long that was. I don't know if it was until this guy repented, if it was for the rest of his life, but he's blind for a time. It says, And immediately mist and darkness fall upon him, and he went around asking people to lead him by the hand. Again, this is the book of Acts. This is descriptive, meaning it describes what happened. It's not prescriptive. So don't go out. And if somebody doesn't hear the gospel from you, don't go say, you're going to be blind, you know, and hope that blindness strikes them or something like that. That's going to have our church be called a cult. And that's not what I want. Okay. If it happens, talk to me after because that (laughs) would be interesting, right? But he strikes him with blindness and it happens immediately. And this guy just goes away looking for someone to help lead him. And then notice verse 12, the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred. Now, I don't think he just believed because he's like, all right, if I oppose these guys, I'm going to go blind, you know, so I'd like to keep my sight. I think, notice what it says, actually. It says, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. I actually don't think it was the miracle. Now, I think the miracle got his attention, you know, made him pay attention to what they were saying. But it was actually the teaching of the Lord that converted his heart. Let's remember that as we think about, okay, how do we reach people? We can do a lot of really cool things to try to share the gospel with others, but we don't want people to just be attracted to those things, to those gimmicks, to those things we try to do to get people's attention. But we want people to be amazed and astonished at God's word and his gospel 
that is really what changes lives. It was great that Paul was able to turn this guy blind who was opposing them, but it is even more amazing that God saved the soul of this proconsul and he believed. This proconsul believed because he saw the gospel here at work. And we see them in the next verse, and as we get into next week's passage, we're going to see them set sail from Paphos and come to Pergia. And they're going to keep going through this area, some of the area that's actually going to be the region of Galatia. And this is where some of the towns that were the churches of the Galatians are. And Paul's going to write to them later. How will God use you to share the gospel with others? Hopefully it doesn't mean you'll strike people blind. But sometimes you will face challenges, whether it's serving God, whether it's sharing the gospel with others. And you're going to think, I don't know if I can do this. I have doubts about my ability to overcome this obstacle. What if they believe this? What if they reject what I have to say? And this passage, I think, does such a good job of reminding us that if it were up to us on our own, we would probably fail. But it is the power of God that enables us to do the work that he's called us to. It's the power of God that helps us share the gospel with others, that helps us serve him in the areas he's called us to. Like Spurgeon says when he uses the illustration of a lion in a cage to say that the best defense of the gospel is the gospel. So we should know God's word and understand God's word so that we can defend God's word. Maybe you're listening to this sermon this morning and you're thinking, I don't know if I know the Bible well enough to be able to defend it. And maybe the best application for you is to go home and make sure you understand the Bible. Make sure you understand, okay, what is the Bible? I'm not saying you're not saved, but do I know God's word well enough that I can share it with others accurately? Maybe you need to go and find people in your life that you can share the gospel with. And when you come across questions and different thoughts that other people have. Maybe you yourself need to do research and things like that. I'm not saying you're going to be able to defend the Bible against a PhD student, but the people in your life, can you share the gospel with them? Do you know God's word? Do you trust God's word? Oftentimes we can say that we trust God's word, but when it comes time to defend God's word, we actually aren't using God's word, but we use our own arguments our own philosophy or illustrations or things like that, when really we should trust God's word enough to know what it says and to share it with others, knowing that it is the best explanation of itself. As we come to the end of this sermon this morning, we see a great example of God using Paul to share the gospel with others. And you might ask yourself the question, does this mean that God can use me? How might God use me to help others who need to hear the gospel? And if you're here this morning, I do believe God can use you. How can he use you? How do you know that God can use you? Ask yourself these final three questions. First of all, are you a believer in Jesus Christ? Has there been a time in your life where you've understood your need for the gospel, that you're a sinner separated from God that you did not do what was right in God's sight, but you repented of your sins and trusted in Christ's work on the cross to save you from your sins. If you're not a believer this morning, you're not going to be used by God. But God's free gift of salvation is available to all people. 
You can trust in what Christ has done for you. You can believe the gospel. Secondly, are you walking with God? God will use you if you're a believer, yes, but he wants you to be walking with him. Even as we take communion here in a few moments, it's a great time to remember, am I walking in fellowship with God? Is there sin that I need to confess? Is there a problem with another believer that I have? Do I have a conflict in my life, a situation in my life where I need to make it right, to make it whole? Am I walking in good fellowship with God and others? Remember what Jesus says. He says, if you're bringing a gift to God, but you have a fault between you and your brother, go and make it right and leave your gift at the altar. Don't go to worship without making your relationship with God and others right. And then lastly, are you willing to serve? God doesn't always use the most talented people. And in fact, that's something that's just so interesting to see throughout all of Scripture. There were people who were probably better speakers than Paul. There were people who probably knew the Bible even better than some of these apostles. There were people who were more qualified to be used by God. But he doesn't always call those who are the most qualified. But he always calls those who are willing to go and willing to be used by him. So the biggest question you can ask yourself this morning is not, oh, am I smart enough, talented enough, charismatic enough to be used by God? The biggest question you can ask yourself this morning is, am I willing to serve God? And if the answer is yes, then he's going to use you wherever he has you to share the gospel, to serve his church, and to glorify him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you this morning for your servant, Paul and your servant Barnabas for how they shared the gospel with others. God, I ask that you would open our hearts to what you have for us. Convict us of sin. Help us to see areas where we don't trust you like we should. Father, help us even as we look towards communion to remember what you've done for us, your sufficient sacrifice on the cross. And as we consider the cross together, help us to adjust our lives according to what you have for us. Help us to walk in good fellowship with you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.